Alrighty, good morning, everybody. Uh, glad to be back again, though we would rather be in the hospital having a baby right now. So, <laughs> But uh, glad we get to study the sacraments again together. We're looking at baptism today in particular. And I expect extra alertness, because there's no excuses with an extra hour of sleep. So I don't want to see any nodding heads, no sleepy heads today, okay? And this is interesting. We're looking at uh, baptism and its recipients. Um, considering particularly what is baptism, but there's actually really the answer here is kind of covering three different questions. So the three questions that are kind of embedded within this is not just what is baptism, but also um, what are the significations of baptism? And then what is the function of baptism? Or namely, like what does baptism actually do? So we're covering all three of those today. Um, and Next week, we're going to particularly be looking at the doctrine of infant baptism, the recipients, but this is going to tie in a lot to that because that is a big issue that is important for us to understand, and I find that a lot of Reformed people really could not defend the doctrine of infant baptism from the scriptures. They don't really understand it themselves, and so I think it's important for us to really consider that well. So uh, be, before we look at this, let's ask the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you that there is a balm in Gilead, that there is a cleansing blood that can clean our defiled consciences. There is um, water of life that we can drink freely without price and that we can come to Christ to find all that we need in him. And we do ask that we would be people that desire and seek after and find more of Christ, more love, more grace, more freedom in him. Help us as we look to these doctrines of your word now and bless us for Jesus' sake. Amen. So question 165 asks, what is baptism? And the answer of the catechism is that baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament, wherein Christ has ordained the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost to be a sign and seal of engrafting into himself of remission of sins by his blood and regeneration by his spirit, of adoption and resurrection unto everlasting life, and whereby the parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church and enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. So let's look at these phrases in turn. First, we're saying, what is baptism? That baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament, wherein two things are ordained. Christ has ordained the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost. So you say baptism has two essential components, two essential parts, and those are the washing of water and the triune name. These are the two elements that make baptism baptism, water and the triune name. We see this in Matthew 28, 19, in the institution in that Christ told his disciples, Go ye therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And we see this example in Acts, the use of water. And it's been noted in the Reformed tradition that the amount of water used is not of the essence of baptism. Yes, it has a certain signification and importance, but it's not of the essence. And so... Just as in the Lord's Supper, the size of the bread, the size of the wine, is not of the essence. 
so the amount of water is likewise not of the essence. And our confession in Confession 28.3 says this, that dipping of the person into water is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. So we don't, in the Reformed tradition, we don't disagree with using immersion as a form of baptism. Um, Herman Bovink, a great Reformed theologian, thinks that immersion is actually the best symbol for baptism. And immersion was the use in the early church. Um, It was commonly done in the very earliest of churches, which doesn't say everything, because the earliest churches, they also baptized people naked. So I don't think we want to follow their example necessarily (laughs) in every way. But when we're thinking about water, the idea is that of washing. And water is used in the scriptures with a few different significations. And each form of baptism, if water is used in a different way, they're all signifying similar things, but they might have a different nuance. So we think of immersion can really clearly demonstrate that baptism into Christ's death and resurrection unto new life. But very often in the Old and New Testament, the work of the Holy Spirit is talked about as an outpouring. And this idea of the pouring of water to make us clean, the poured out Spirit of God, um, this pouring symbolism also very fittingly portrays um, what God desires for us in baptism. Or on the other hand, sprinkling. Uh, You might think of Ezekiel 36, where God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And so even the sprinkling of water has a signification that brings us back to that thought of even the priests, how everything was sprinkled with blood for cleansing. And we think of the sprinkling of the blood of Christ to cleanse us from sin. So although pouring and sprinkling and immersion, they all have a different power in the symbolism, they would all be fitting fitting symbols to use in baptism. Um, In a similar way, people debate over whether the bread in the Lord's Supper should be leavened bread or unleavened bread. And people argue that there are good and um, there are good significations of each, right? Leaven is sometimes talked about the leaven of the Pharisees, but leavened bread also has this symbol of life and vitality. Unleavened bread, this symbol of, um, you know, the the pain of Christ's death, that casting off of the world. So similarly, I think we can um, have charity for the different ways these symbols are used. Um, one, I, my uh, sister-in-law's grandpa was a Presbyterian pastor for, he's been a pastor for over 50 years, but he always made this joke when he would discuss the, um, d- discussing with Baptists who said that immersion is the only way with, the only way baptism can be performed. So he would kind of have this running joke with them where he'd say, you know, um, what if you baptize the person up to their knees? Is that baptism? They'd say, no, it doesn't count. He'd say, what if up to their waist? He'd say, no, that has to be all the way. He's like, what if you like baptize them all the way up to their neck? Would that count? They're like, no, it has to be full immersion. He said, what if you baptize them up to just over top of their eyebrows, just a little bit? They said, no, you have to be immersed or nothing. So he said, and then he ends and says, so it's only really the top of the head that matters anyways, which is what we baptize. So that, that was Doug Codling's um, discussion of the amount of water in baptism. But it displays the point that to, to get hung up on almost a superstitious idea that the amount of water turns this into a sacred rite or not, um, I think is not quite the way we think about spirit and truth working with the means of grace and scripture. 
So the first element is the use of water. And the second element is the use of the triune name, baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now again here, we want to recognize that this isn't a superstitious formula, that if you just say those words in that exact way, that's what makes it work. It's, the main issue here is the idea that being baptized into the triune name is being baptized into a true Christian church, that is a Trinitarian church. As we see, even in the book of Acts, they're not tied to that exact formula. They often talk about being baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ or being baptized into Jesus Christ. But that's because they were recognizing that baptism into Jesus meant baptism into this community that recognized both Father and Son and Spirit. It was still Trinitarian baptism, even if they didn't exactly use that Trinitarian formula. There's no reason really for us to not use that Trinitarian formula, but we need to recognize that those aren't magic words. We're acknowledging that we are baptizing someone into the true Christian church, which is why we will recognize in the OPC baptisms from churches that use water and do baptize into the true triune name. So historically, the Presbyterian church has recognized even the baptisms of Roman Catholics as Christian baptism. However, we would not recognize the baptism of Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, um, sects that don't acknowledge the triune God, or even oneness Pentecostals that don't properly acknowledge the Trinity. We would say that is not Christian baptism because it's not a triune baptism. Uh, does that make sense? Any comments or questions so far? Yeah, so we would say it's not um, it's not that if someone has a bad doctrine of baptism that the baptism is then invalid, right? So both Catholics and Lutherans and some Anglicans believe, for instance, that baptism regenerates the baby. It actually gives them like new spiritual life. And we'd say that's an error. But that doesn't mean that the baptism, the sacred rite, wasn't still that same sacred rite. It was baptism in the triune name, um, the name of God placed upon that child. And so we, we would recognize that. Um, yeah. Okay, so if we're looking at, that's what baptism is. Those are the two components. What are the significations? This is similar to what we saw the previous week, looking at what the sacraments mean. But we can see that these are the things that Christ ordained baptism to be. So it's to be, first of all, a sign and seal of ingrafting into himself. That is, baptism is a symbol of union with Christ, um, one of the great blessings of salvation. And we're not saying it's a um, sign and seal that the person being baptized has for sure had that already happen to them. It symbolizes this regardless of the heart state of the recipient. And we can think of here as um, from Galatians 3, 2. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That language of putting on Christ, that language of being united with him, having his righteousness as our own. And this verse, I want to point out something, because this is a verse that is often used um, to say that every recipient of baptism must be a true believer. Okay, this is something Baptists will point to. They'll say, isn't it clear here that as many of you as have been baptized in Christ have put on Christ? You already are in that relationship with Christ. But I want to point out that this actually proves too much. Because if this is saying that as many of you have, as have been baptized externally, have put on Christ internally, 
What you're actually saying is that every person that has been baptized is for sure born again. And everyone acknowledges that there can be people that receive baptism that don't know the Lord, whether they were done, whether they were baptized as adults or children. Many people walk away from the faith not knowing the Lord. So this actually proves too much. So there's actually only two options to interpret this verse consistently. We either interpret it both externally or both internally. So you might, we could interpret this as, as many of you as have been baptized into Christ's name externally have put on Christ externally. That is, you are called Christians. Um, this external right leads to an external witness in this world, that as a baptized one, people will see you as a Christian. Or perhaps better, we ought to think of these as both internal. That as many of you as have truly been baptized into Christ in your heart, have had that faith and repentance, have put on Christ's righteousness um, in your heart on the inside. So just that, yeah, that, that verse comes up quite a bit. But the symbolism is that symbolism of union with Christ. A second symbol is that Christ ordained baptism to be a sign and seal of remission of sins by his blood. And I, I would argue that this is the primary symbolism of baptism. It's that of washing. Our sins are talked about in the Bible like filth, like this dirtiness that we need to be cleansed from. And this is a really tight symbolism, right? Just washing away dirt from the body, washing away sin from the soul. And this symbolism is so tight, it's so closely connected in the New Testament, that sometimes the biblical writers, they'll use language that doesn't even differentiate. So think of how this is used in Acts 22.16. This is about Paul and Ananias' call to him. Um, he calls to Paul and says, Why do you tarry? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on the name of the Lord. So here, the actual physical act of the washing of baptism is standing in for that spiritual act of repentance and faith. The, 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 the washing, the physical, is so closely symbolizing the internal that they just use the external language to represent the internal reality. Which is, really, which is why also in 1 Peter 3, he says, baptism saves you. Um, but then he points out, it's not as a removal of the dirt from the flesh, but it's the appeal to God for this good conscience. But the language um, is intimately tied together because the symbolism is really close. And if we think of that Heidelberg Catechism answer of last week, when we see someone being baptized, we want to remember that just as surely as this person is washed with water, so certainly have our sins been cleansed for us who trust in Christ. We see also this sort of language in Revelation 1.5, where he's praising God, saying, to him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. It's Christ's blood that washes our hearts clean, symbolized by the washing of water in baptism, which where some would point out, you want to make sure you use at least enough water that you could argue there's some level of washing or cleansing, right? If it's just like the lightest droplet, maybe you need to use a little bit more than that. Um, forgiveness of sins by his blood. Thirdly, um, it's ordained to be a sign and seal of regeneration by God's spirit. And this again, the water is a good symbol. Um, and even so because we understand that baptism takes water imagery in applying it to the believer, we can look to other texts that use water imagery for spiritual things, even if baptism's not explicitly mentioned, and we can apply that to the doctrine of baptism. Here's what I mean. 
Think of Titus 3.5, where we're told that not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. So here, baptism is not explicitly mentioned, but the doctrine of regeneration, that of being given a new heart, being made a new creature in Christ, is talked about with washing language. So when we then think of the washing rite of baptism, we can import this, signific- this signification of the washing of regeneration, being made a new creature. Or when we think of Ephesians 5.26, Christ and the church, that Christ gave himself to sanctify and cleanse the church with the washing of water by the word. Again, baptism not explicitly mentioned, but this symbolism works so well. Um, This sanctifying and cleansing, this being made new with the washing of water by the word. And so if we tie these um, previous two together, remission of sins, regeneration, we have the blessing of forgiveness and cleansing. And so I think we think uh, rightly from 1 John 1, where you remember the text says that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just, one, to forgive us our sins, and two, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we need to remember that the blessings symbolized in baptism include both forgiveness and cleansing. And I think we're often quick to forget the cleansing part. We know that God's forgiven us for our worst sins, but we still feel defiled by them in our consciences. We still feel weighed down, guilty, and dirty. But the blessing of God on us is that not only are we just forgiven, just It's not only that the penalty is wiped away, but we're actually cleansed and don't need to carry the burden of that guilt and dirtiness in our consciences. So the cleansing is a wonderful um, symbol and something we really need to take hold of. And if you think of even um, a young child um, and you feel ashamed for how you lived your life, but you think this child has not yet lived a life worthy of being ashamed of. They, they haven't been walking in lewdness and impropriety and cursing and bitterness. Um, they, you, see, you, you think say, they have nothing to be ashamed of. And in, in even a more real way, the child of God has nothing with which to be ashamed of. Because we are birthed anew by the Spirit, um, cleansed and holy in Christ. Just a wonderful blessing. Um, any, any comments or questions on those three? So, in the very early church, well, nowadays, so we have profession of faith separate from baptism. But the very early church was it more the your baptism was at the time of basically your profession of faith, your entrance into the church. And when were those two separated? Uh, Yes, I'll try to cover some of that. Um, So, yes, in in the New Testament, baptism follows immediately upon profession of faith or the profession of faith of the head of the household, in which case the whole household's baptized. And I do think it's important that we see baptism as that initiation into the Christian faith. Not the, it's the initiation into discipleship, not the culmination of discipleship. But because in the early church, in a lot of ways, their doctrine wasn't very good yet, um, they believed that baptism did actually wash away your sins, um, but only the sins up till that point. And so in the early church, baptism started getting delayed as they said, well, if you want to wash away all your previous sins, best to do that as late in life as possible. So you started getting these massively delayed baptisms, which were hugely problematic. But they also then started a process where they would have people called catechumens, and the catechumens wouldn't be allowed to get baptized until way down that process, 
were almost like they had proven their faith was sound. So I think we see early on, because of a wrong doctrine of baptism, a departure from the biblical practice of seeing it as an initiation rite. Um, as far as when confession of faith got instituted, I forget exactly how early that started, but those were kind of kept together for a while, that there was this catechumen process, you would confess faith and then be baptized, but I, I don't know when it switched, but it was rightly understood that baptism is the initiation, but there still ought, be, ought to be a confession and a culmination, which is why we understand the Lord's Supper as the rite that marks our understanding participation um, in the church and our full rights and privileges of membership, which we will look at um, in coming weeks or in coming semesters if we get there. So, but yeah, good, good question. And fourthly, um, Christ ordained baptism to be a sign and seal of adoption. Think of John 3, 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Just as you are born out of water, you know, a baby's whole life is in water at the start, born out of water into a physical family, so we are born anew of the Spirit into the spiritual family of God. And one of the greatest blessings we have is being adopted, adopted children of God. And lastly, Christ ordained baptism to be a sign and seal of the resurrection unto everlasting life. Romans 6, 5. If we've been planted together in the likeness of death, likeness of his death, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And so it's not just the spiritual resurrection unto life, but baptism even symbolizes that physical resurrection, resurrection unto everlasting life that we'll have at the end of the age. And so regardless of one's view on baptism, all must acknowledge that there's an, an, a symbolic aspect of baptism that is never going to be fulfilled in this life by the recipient. But we await the true fulfillment of this rite in the new world, which is kind of cool to think about. And so thus far, uh, we have two components of baptism, water and the triune name, five significations of baptism, namely ingrafting, forgiveness, regeneration, adoption, and resurrection, and lastly, and I think this is um, the most misunderstood, is the results of baptism. That is, what does baptism actually do? And we're going to see it's two things. Um, admittance into the church and engagement to be the Lord's. So first, let's consider that baptism is an ordinance of Christ whereby the parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church. Okay, so we're talking about the visible external community of faith, the local church, and an admittance into it, right? You might think if you go to a play, a show, a movie, and it'll say like no admittance without like a ticket, right? So you show the ticket to the guy and you'll get let in. Um, baptism is kind of like one's ticket that allows them admittance into the visible church. And, and some texts that kind of give us this idea, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit we are all baptized into one body whether we be Jews or Greeks, bond or free. So there is this baptized into the body. And that would be true in a spiritual sense. If one is spiritually baptized, they join the spiritual family of God. But even externally, an external baptism admit one, it admits one into the external family of God. It's, it's a mark of membership. And in Acts 2, when Peter preaches, people repent, they get baptized. He says, the promise is for you and your children. Uh, we're told in Acts 2 that those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. 
So they count the membership of the church, the additional people, by the additional people that were baptized. It was how they marked their membership. And we know that this is the church because these are the people in the next verse who are devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking the bread, and prayers. So we are talking about church membership. And as Ellie was alluding to, we do distinguish between what we call um, communicant church membership and non-communicant church membership. So we would say that baptized children are non-communicant members of the church. They're members of the church, but they don't have all the same privileges and rights as someone who is a professing, communicating member of the church. That is someone who has come to years and understanding to be able to properly examine, examine themselves, properly own the faith, participate in the Lord's Supper with that level of cognition. And so we do have this distinction. And maybe a helpful way to think of it would be that um, in many cases, our rights and privileges are um, concomitant with our age and understanding, right? So if you had a family pass to the YMCA, you would understand that um, only people 18 and up can use the steam room. And there's, there's all these signs at the one in Granville that'll say, you know, if you're under 12, ask for help and understanding to learn how to use this machine before you get on it, right? There's certain things that require a greater level of maturity and understanding to be able to properly participate in. So even though the whole family has this membership, um, those that have come to a certain ability level gain greater privileges. And so that's why when we have confession of faith, we're recognizing that a child has come to a greater level of understanding where they can participate in things like the Lord's Supper that require the ability to examine your heart, to actually introspect your own motives and the truth of the gospel in your heart. And that does require a certain cognitive ability. Uh, John Calvin said that he assumed most children came to this ability around uh, 10 to 14 years of age different for different kids. That, that, that was his view. Some churches, in order to not have to discern between all children's um, ability levels, have just said, well, everyone is eligible once they're 18, which is prob- not, not, not a way I think is um, best to deal with this. Case by case is probably best. But that, that, that's a little bit on two types of membership. And when we're doing this with our children, we're recognizing by this that they are different than children of the world. Um, They are in the YMCA with us. They're part of this membership in this community. And we do recognize them as such, even when people try not to. And we recognize that they're a part of us. They are using the communal pools and the communal machines in, as they partake of the means of grace with us, as they sit under the word, are discipled in the faith, are a blessing to us by their love and their joy. Um, we implicitly recognize this such that in all churches, even in Baptist churches, when a child has grown up in the church, and perhaps they never get baptized, never profess faith, and they go to college and ab- abandoned everything they were raised with, people mourn that this child abandoned the faith. They mourn that this child has left the church. And you, that actually doesn't make sense if they've never actually joined the church, never truly been a part of it. It would be the equivalent as an unbelieving kid down the street um, not following the Lord, because they were never following him. But we recognize implicitly that there is some special call, some special privilege for those who are raised in the church, that when they abandon what they've been raised with, we recognize there is a leaving of this visible community of God, and we mourn it, and it's saddening, and we recognize this as a form of apostasy. And so baptism is for a solemn admittance 
into the visible church. Any comments or questions on that point? Okay, and secondly, in baptism, one enters into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord. Okay, so these are the two things baptism actually does. Baptism doesn't save anybody. Baptism doesn't spiritually change anybody. It doesn't um, have some power. But what it does is it marks them as a member of the visible church, and it obligates them to live for the Lord. It marks them out as one who is engaged to be holy and only the Lord's. And so when the triune name, the name of God is placed upon someone, that person has an obligation to live up to the calling of that name. Um, In Philippians 2, we're called to walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. In Ephesians 4 as well. And so to be a part of this believing community, to have the name Christian means that there is an expectation that you will act in Christ-like ways. Uh, You might think of there are certain standards of behavior for professional organizations, right? Maybe you have one in yours. I used to be an accountant. I was a CPA. And the CPA code in Canada had all these regulations that um, you are expected to behave this way with this level of honesty and decorum and professionalism. And if you violated the code, there was discipline in different ways. Um, You would go through these things because... They wanted to protect the trustworthiness of the designation CPA. And they knew that if people started diluting it by acting in unprofessional or unhelpful ways, that it would lose its value. And so that's why this idea of baptism, and really this ties in with church discipline, is so important that the name of Christ not be sullied by those who don't live for the Lord. And so there is this calling in baptism to uphold the standards of the name of Christian. It's really a call to those three components of love, allegiance to God, right action toward God, and heartfelt affection towards God. It's a call to those things, to walk in them, to find them. And this is really the heart of the covenant, is when God said, I will be your God and you will be my people, a people that live for God. Or as he told to Abraham, that I will be a God to you and your descendants after you. We are called to be the Lord's people, us who have his name on him. And again, we can think about, um, like the, say the call of a royal, that uh, if you think of the British royal family, of which I'm under the queen's uh, rule um, as a Canadian, that when the children are born into that home, they are automatically enrolled enrolled in this royal category. And they have certain expectations from society that they will act a certain way, that their parents will raise them in a certain way. And we've seen that some, once they come to their own understanding and maturity, they will choose to cast off that royal lineage, right? Like, um, like has happened recently. And that's similar to how it is with this engagement to be the Lord's with our children, is that they're raised up in the royal household, and they are expected that they will own this for themselves, walk in it, learn the royal ways. But when they come to that age of maturity, they might cast it off. They might abandon it and leave it behind, perhaps showing that they never truly understood it in their hearts. But the way it doesn't work, the child of the queen is not raised neutrally, just saying, when you choose to live as a royal, you can or not. Live however you want until then. No, there's this expectation, and they have to reject it um, if they want to, in a sense, leave those obligations. Though, that you, could, you would say it, they're abandoning their um, royal expectations and duties. 
And even with children, we recognize this implicitly, that children of Christian homes bear a Christian duty. If even a first grader in, say, a public school is misbehaving, hitting the kids, the parents and other kids will say, isn't that a Christian kid? Wow, look, the Christian kid is the worst kid in the school. And the parents might argue, but our kids never profess faith. But they still recognize there's, some, there's an explicit or an implicit external um, call that they ought to live differently as one who is part of a Christian household. And so in this, what we're saying is that baptism is calling forth a certain way of life, not just in children, but in each one of us. Um, baptism, again, and I mentioned this before, and it's so important, that it's the initiation into the discipleship process. It's not the culmination of the discipleship process. Remember when Christ instituted this in the Great Commission? He said to go and make disciples of all nations in two parts. One, baptizing them, and then teaching them to observe. The baptism here is the start, and the teaching is the continuation. And we see this mirrored in a small form in the household. In um, the instruction Paul gives to fathers in Ephesians 6.4, to not stir up their children to anger, but to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And the word training there is the word for discipleship, to bring them up in the discipleship and admonition of the Lord. And it's recognizing that when children are baptized, we're saying they are enrolled in the school of Christ. They're enrolled now in the school of discipleship. Just like you might enroll your child in some, um, some school when they're at a very young age, you're recognizing that they are there and they're going to be trained and grow up into that. Because baptism marks them out as ones who are being discipled. And we hope and pray and call them in that discipleship process that they will internalize it, own it for themselves, and come to true faith and repentance in there. Perhaps at a time we don't know, understand, perhaps dramatically, but that as they are trained in this external school of Christ, they come to be a true internal disciple of Christ. And you might think, like, is this fair or realistic, right? Like, is it, isn't it unfair to a child to, in this sense, expect and call them to live as a Christian before they might even have the spiritual resources or desire to do so? And I don't think that it's as odd as you might think. We do this in many ways. So imagine uh, your family here. You guys are huge fans of whatever the team is that's the Go Blue one. I just hear people say Go Blue like it's a thing. So let's say you have this, uh, you're a Go Blue fan, and um, when your child's born, you buy them a sleeper, and the sleeper says Go Blue on it. And everyone looks and says, that's so cute. Of course they're going to be a fan of that team because you guys are all huge fans of that team. And you can't imagine that your child at four, at five, at six years old is going to say, I hate that team. I want nothing to do with it. Perhaps as they get old, they decide, ah, I want to change my allegiances. I want to go elsewhere. But we don't have an issue with this idea that we can expect and raise a child into being a fan of a team. Just like baptism, we are putting a sleeper on this child that marks them off that says, um, growing training apprentice to Christ. And we expect that as they're trained, they will internalize what that um, sleeper on them is saying and truly be a disciple, truly be a fan of Jesus. But we're marking them that this child is not like some random neutral child in the world. They're going to be raised with a particular set of circumstances, expectations, and experiences, privileges that others don't have. And we hope and pray that they own them for themselves in time. 
And so I think for us also, let's not just think of children here, but think of ourselves as um, we ought to consider the privileges of being a Christian for us, right? If we've repented and believed these signs and seals are true of us, to be united with Christ, to be forgiven of sins, to be made new in the inner man, adopted into the family of God, awaiting the resurrection of everlasting life, those are such amazing privileges that we have by faith. And so if we've been or to have been brought into the church as the family of God, to have this calling to be holy and only the Lord's. Um, And so in light of that, how could we not then want to walk this out in giving God our highest allegiance, our most true um, actions, our deepest affections, to engage ourselves to be holy the Lord's. And if he has put his name on us, we ought to witness well of him in all that we do and say. So the two things baptism does, enters us into the visible church and engages us to be holy and only the Lord's. Um, we got time for another question or two if, if anyone's got one. Yeah. So some people, they're baptized as infants and then they decide as adults to say they didn't walk in the heart for a while or some significant confession of sin happens, they decide to be baptized again as adults. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think that I'm generous in that. Like, I think if the person feels they need that and want that, I would try to counsel them carefully. But if someone felt like they needed this, I wouldn't say you could never do that. But we want to recognize that it didn't matter if they weren't believing at the time of their baptism. They received the, 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 the right the same way. And so what they are doing now is they need to really own that in, for themselves. You can apply faith backwards as well as forwards, right? Your faith, our faith reaches back to the cross and applies Christ's blood to us now. And so someone who's been walking far from God, their faith can reach back to the baptism they received and say, I receive that mark now as something to build my faith as my washing and cleansing and freedom. Um, though the, the, the rebaptism issue is the first question I had when I was a Baptist that made me start questioning that doctrine. Uh, someone in our church, she felt like she'd been not a Christian, got saved and got rebaptized. And I dealt with this problem of you could logically have an infinite regression. Oh, I realized I wasn't truly saved at the time of my last baptism. I should be rebaptized again. Five years later, I actually wasn't truly saved then. I should be rebaptized again. And I realized that if baptism is not baptism, unless you, are, you know for sure you were regenerated at that time, then you can never know if anyone is ever baptized because we can never know the true state of someone's heart. And that's why baptism is an external rite that happens regardless of the person's inner state. They were baptized. They were washed with water in the triune name. It's an objective rite that calls forth a subjective reality. And if the subjective reality is missing, it doesn't invalidate or nullify the rite. Which is why I was confused when Baptists would say that an infant baptism isn't a baptism. It's just getting a baby wet. I could say, how could it not be a baptism? It's a washing with water in the triune name. And if the invisible thing was required to make it a reality, you can never know if someone's baptized. So I, I, I kind of went off on a tangent there, but thanks for the question, Daryl. Uh, one, one more. Can someone be saved without being baptized? Yes, we, uh, we would think of the thief on the cross, right, who Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's not essential for salvation. Um, but we would say um, ordinarily, um, there, the, the reformers would say that ordinarily there's no salvation apart from the church. And if baptism is one's entrance into the church, um, we, w- we would be, it would seem, it would be odd and 
we ought to be, in a sense, skeptical that someone thinks they're saved if they've never had any connection to a local church, though it's possible. So I'd say, in that sense, baptism ordinarily is a part of someone's salvation journey, in that being a part of the local church is God's plan for each one of us. So. All right, I think we're out of time. Um, I'll, be, I'll be here for another 10 minutes or so, uh, but let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask for the spiritual strength and vigor and vitality to truly live for you, to live up to what our baptisms symbolize, to live giving you our allegiance, our actions, our affections, that you would be all in all to us and that we would give ourselves wholly to you, to give ourselves as living sacrifice, which is really just our reasonable service. It's our um, acceptable worship to you. And would we uh, participate in that now in your corporate public worship, that you would help us to renew our allegiance, to revive our affections, to re-resolve to obey you with our all. And to that end, bless your word, bless our prayers, all for Jesus' sake and glory. In his name we pray. Amen.